Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 59, 1-65, to found on page 605 of the Provided Bibles. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. They rush into sin. They are sweet to shed innocent <laughs> they are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know the peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was even no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak, according to what they have done. So he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the, repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob and those who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of the descendants, from this time and forever, says the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. And his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To the riches of the nations will come. This is the word of God. Here in Isaiah chapter 59... We see <clears throat> renewal for God's people, the need for renewal for God's people. And in chapter 60, we see renewal for God's world, renewal for God's people and renewal for God's world. And in the last section, we had another glimpse of the need for renewal of God's people because of the sinfulness 
of God's people. And uh, 59 and chap- uh, chapter 59 and uh, 57 sort of form a parallel to show the two main categories in which Isaiah and the other biblical prophets view sin and view the sinfulness of God's people in particular first, which we see in chapter 57, is idolatry. And we didn't look in depth in chapter 57 because we've looked at that topic before in the book of Isaiah. The first category in which Isaiah and the other biblical prophets view sin of God's people is idolatry. The second category we see in chapter 59 is social injustice. And idolatry is a violation of the commandments uh, one through four of the Ten Commandments, which are summarized by the first great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And social injustice, then, is the violation of the commandments five through ten of the Ten Commandments, which are summarized in the second great command, love your neighbor as yourself. So even the Ten Commandments then are summarized by those two great commands and deal with those categories of sin and God's people, idolatry and social injustice. And so in every way, what we're seeing in the book of Isaiah, in the vertical dimension and in the horizontal dimension, in their relationship with God and in their relationship with neighbor, and not just neighbor, but brother and sister in the family of God, in every way, Sin has corrupted them. In every way, they have broken fellowship with God. And I used the term social injustice before, and that term, or its parallel term, social justice, can carry some baggage with it, but what it conveys in the biblical prophets is simply love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. How we treat one another, and how we hurt one another, and how We fail to love one another and how we sin against one another. All of that is what we see here in chapter 59 and in the biblical prophets. All of that matters to God. It's sin and God hates it. How we treat one another, how we fail to love one another, how we hurt one another, all of that matters to God. And it's sin and he hates it. And what we see here in chapter 59 is sort of a continuation a little bit of what we saw in chapter 58, that the people of God at this time were religious hypocrites. They go through the formal outward motions of religion, but true religion is lacking from their lives. True religion is constituted as love for one another, love for neighbor. It's totally lacking from their lives. Their hearts have no love, not just no love for God in them, but no love for one another. And that makes any service, any religious service that they could render to God as empty and hollow, mere hypocrisy. And it's not just as we saw in chapter 58 that they're failing to lift the chains of injustice and oppression in their society, But chapter 59 shows us more that it's them who are doing the injustice and oppressing in society. And worse than that, they're doing it to one another. They're doing it to others in the family of God, those that they are supposed to love and respect and honor and treat with dignity. They are oppressing and trampling on and they're doing it to the weakest and the most vulnerable 
of society. And it's nothing but religious hypocrisy. And we know what Jesus thought about religious hypocrisy and what he thought about it ought to make us very concerned to make sure that that doesn't describe us. And we see this uh, failure to love one another characterizing the people of God, particularly in this description of one, uh, chapter 59, verses one through eight. Their hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, in verse three. Your lips have spoken falsely, your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads a case with an integrity. They rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. The image there of giving birth ought to be an image of life and fullness. But instead, because of the sin in their lives, it's an image of death and poison. He goes on to talk about they hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. See, whatever's, no matter what comes out of this people, it's poison because of the sin that has corrupted them. And that sin that has corrupted them in their personal lives extends out to how they treat one another and it's spread out into their society which is composed of one another and corrupted the society of the people of God. And in verse 15, he sums it up and says, truth is nowhere to be found. You know, in the place where it was supposed to be a beacon of God's truth to the world of darkness Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes prey. When you're surrounded by evil, and and what he's saying is in this context, (laughs) if you try to do the right thing, you better have a lot of courage. Because you're surrounded by evil, and that evil is gonna come after you. That's what happens in a corrupt society when people try to live out righteousness and try to pursue justice and try to do the right thing. And I mentioned before that the term social injustice, the way I'm using that, and I think the way the biblical prophets talk about that is just simply failure to love one another. That term sometimes comes with some baggage and sometimes in its worst forms, what that baggage does is it heaps guilt on every Christian and on every church and on the church for not ending any and every evil out there in the world. But the reality is that's false guilt because we will never do that in this life. Until Jesus comes back and rights all wrongs, we will not do that. The church will not do that. But nevertheless, the teaching of the biblical prophets on this issue ought to make us want to care about and want to do something if we can do something about the injustices right around us in society but more than that it ought to make us very careful that we are not contributing to those injustices around us by the injustices in us by the evils in us it ought to make us see the importance of the the command to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so at bare minimum, as Christians, we ought to have 
some zeal to do the right thing in our lives. We had to do the right thing. You know, Christians ought to be people who at base level can be trusted and relied upon to do what's right. But often they're not. We need to not step on other people to get ahead or get what we want. And when we see other people being stepped on, we ought to care. And if we can, we ought to intervene. But in the people of God in Isaiah's day, they had let sin so run its course in their lives that it had totally corrupted society. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. There is only oppression. There is only the shedding blood of the brothers in the family of God that they ought to have loved and honored. Sin has run its course in, in society. And in the Old Testament, God's people were held responsible, responsible for the condition of society. Because in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, was society. They were society. Society was constituted by those who were supposed to be the people of God. Now the church today is in a different situation. It's a more complicated situation. We're not a theocracy as Old Testament Israel was. In Old Testament Israel, there was no division between church and state. They were one and the same thing. For the New Testament church, the New Testament is separated from society in a sense. We are not, the church is not the nation that it lives in. And so it's not identified as society as God's people were in the Old Testament. It's separated from any particular nation state. It transcends identification with any particular nation state because it's comprised of people from all nations. Citizenship in God's family has no correlation with citizenship in any nation. And so what that means is that in the Old Testament, God's people were directly held responsible for the condition of society because society was composed of God's people and governed by God's law. But in the New Testament, society is not identical to God's people or God's laws. In their context, society was the church. In our context, society is a mixture of church and world, of Christians and non-Christians. And so the way that these prophetic judgments against God's people for the corruption of society uh, in Isaiah and in the biblical prophets, the way that applies to the church today is different than the way it applied then. In the Old Testament, for the nation of Israel, it meant that society had to be righteous and free of oppression. And to the degree that it wasn't, they were responsible for that. For the church, it means that the church community ought to be free uh, of oppression and characterized by righteousness. And to the degree that it isn't, we are responsible for that. Because the church is the society of God's people, the place that's composed of the people of God and ought to be governed by the laws of God that promote righteousness and justice. And if it doesn't, um, then we are responsible for that. If society that the church lives in and that Christians live in is unrighteous, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the church's fault or the failure of Christians. It might mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. That's what it meant in the Old Testament, but that's not necessarily what it means in our day. Because 
society, as I said, is a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. It's a mixture of the influence of the church and the influence of the world. More or less disproportionate of influence from one society to the other. And so the Christian's role in society is to do what's right and to stand up for the biblical principles of justice. But the state of society isn't necessarily a report card for the church because Christians and churches might be being very faithful to God, living lives of righteousness, but the culture might still be declining into sin and blindness anyway. Or the culture might be generally good, but the church might still be declining in faithful, faithfulness. And so God's people, though they belong to the church, they still live in the world and they ought to care about the world around us. And we ought to care about the injustices we see in it. But we live as pilgrims in this world, as travelers in this world, as citizens of another place. And while we still care about earthly society because our neighbors live there, and we love our neighbors. And while we do whatever we can to be uh, agents of justice and righteousness in this world, our hope is never in fixing this world. But it's in God's making a new world. And in God making us new. And that's what we see in, in these chapters. We're going to look at in chapter 59 that we see the sinfulness of God's people that has corrupted their lives and their society. And we see a couple things here. We see the penalty of sin, we see the pollution of sin, and we see God's solution for sin. In verse 2, we see the penalty of sin. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And this is the justification of the assertion of verse 1 where he says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, the people of God aren't experiencing God's favor. And perhaps they're wondering or assuming that the reason they're not experiencing God's favor is because of some deficiency in him. But what Isaiah is saying is it's not some deficiency in God. His arm isn't too short to save. His ear isn't too dull to hear. But the reason you're not experiencing his salvation or that he's not hearing you when you call to him isn't a deficiency in him, but it's because of what you're bringing to the table. It's because of your sin. This is the penalty of sin. Guilt before God which separates us from him separates us from his loving presence and loving favor. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from loving fellowship with God because God is infinitely good and perfectly holy and he can't look with favor upon guilty sinners or be in fellowship with sin. Where sin is present and unatoned for, only God's wrath and anger can be present. But when the guilt of sin is atoned for, then fellowship with God and the experience of his loving favor and blessing can be restored. And this is what God has done. For all do turn to him in humble repentance. He's offered his son as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin so that it's removed. The guilt of it is removed and God's face can be turned towards us. Before Jesus comes into our life, sin separates us from God. So it's that we don't know God. We don't have fellowship with God. 
We don't know and have God's love and blessing. We only have his wrath and curse. Jesus reconciles us to God so that now nothing can separate us from God's presence and love. Nothing can separate us from God's presence and love. Now, even in Christ, our sin affects our experience of that fellowship with God. It clouds and diminishes our sense of fellowship with God and our enjoyment of God's presence. And why would we choose sin and its emptiness and death rather than the enjoyment of God's presence and fellowship? It's like choosing solitary confinement over family belonging. It's emptiness, it's death, and it robs us of the riches of what we are created for that we find when we enjoy the fullness of our fellowship with God. There's nothing more devastating in human experience than being separated from God. There's nothing more devastating than having the face, uh, God's face of love and favor turned away from us. That's what we have in our sin. We might think we gain the world, but we lose the one thing in this world that is of ultimate importance and brings ultimate satisfaction. And there's nothing more significant in human experience than having God's face turned towards us in love and favor, and that's what we have in Jesus. And God's face in a moment of unthinkable suffering and wrath when Jesus suffered on the cross turned away from him so that it could be turned towards us in grace and love. That's the penalty of sin, that it separates us from God. The pollution of sin we also see in chapter 59, and Paul quotes from Isaiah 59 in Romans chapter 3 when he's describing the state of sinful humanity apart from Christ. And his point there in Romans chapter 3 is perfectly in line with Isaiah 59. It's a perfect demonstration of what Isaiah 59 is trying to communicate to the people of God, is that apart from God's redemption coming into our lives, apart from Jesus coming into our lives, we are not just a little bit sinful. We're not just a little bit off track, but we're totally corrupted by sin. And we see this in this description of how sin affects every part of the people. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. Uh, Earlier it mentions that violence is on their hands, uh, that their hands are stained with blood. Their lips have spoken falsely. What this is trying to get across is that sin has corrupted every part of their persons. And what Paul is trying to get across when he quotes this in Romans 3 is that sin has corrupted every part of our nature. In our fallen state, apart from God's grace coming into our lives, we're characterized by what theologians call total depravity. And there's two parts of this. First is spiritual inability. The inability to please God. Before Jesus comes into our lives, we are totally unable to please God. And that doesn't mean that unbelievers can't do good things that are outwardly good. It doesn't mean that an unbeliever can't love their family to some degree. 
But it means that everything they do will be stained with sin in some way such that it can't meet God's holy standard and so it can't be pleasing to God. It means that apart from Christ, we can't do, say, or think that which totally meets God's approval, totally fulfills God's law, and so we can't please God. It means apart from the Holy Spirit, we are unable to change the direction of our life from ultimately sinful self-love to love for God. Augustine summarized this fallen state of humanity in this simple phrase, unable to not sin. Outside of Christ, our nature is sinful. And even if we can do things that are outwardly good, we are enslaved to sin. We're dead in our sins. The direction of our lives is dead set against God. And so we can't please him. Christians, once Jesus comes into our lives, are no longer unable to please God. Christians, by the Spirit of God and through the blood of Jesus, are able to please God. Christians are, in another short little phrase of Augustine, Christians now are able to not sin. Because Christians are reborn in Jesus with a renewed nature, that though we are still able to sin, and though we still battle against sin, we have now new hearts that love God and seek to please God. And this doesn't mean that we obey God perfectly, but that by his grace, God accepts our good works when they're done in faith and sincerity because we are his children whom he loves and he cleanses the imperfections of those good works with the blood of Jesus. We can now please God. So it means uh, total inability, total depravity means total inability to please God. Second, it means total corruption. That every part of us, our entire human nature was affected by the fall, body, mind, heart, and soul. And this doesn't mean we always act as sinfully as we can, but it means that sin affects every part of us and everything we think, say, and do. To the depths of our hearts, even our thoughts, desires, and intentions. Love for God doesn't motivate our hearts apart from Christ. But as believers, though sin is still present in our lives for the entirety of this life, though sin does still corrupt us, though we still struggle against sin, we're not totally depraved because we, God is renewing us. And our true identity is our new nature in Christ that's being renewed into the image of God. And our God promises that in the end, our new nature will be victorious over the old self of sin. And that's the promise of verse 21. God's spirit renewing our nature so that God's truth and righteousness characterizes our lives. As for me, verse 21, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I've put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. See, what I want to get across here is that verses one through eight ought not to characterize you if you're a Christian. Sometimes I think we misunderstand that. We read descriptions of unregenerate uh, people. This is a description of the apostate people of God in the Old Testament in verse one through eight. 
That should not characterize us. What ought to characterize us is verse 21. The Spirit of God who's putting the truths of God into our lives, who's remaking us by the image of God, who's brought us into his new covenant that, is, that surpasses the old covenant because it is effective to bring about what it promises in the people of God and what it calls the people of God to. This certainly doesn't mean we in the new covenant are perfect. It certainly doesn't mean we don't struggle. But we ought not to have our lives be characterized of this description of the sinful people in that day. Our lives ought to be characterized by the Spirit of God remaking us according to God's righteousness. And that is the solution for sin. We see the penalty of sin, we see the pollution of sin, and we see God's solution for his sin. God's solution is redemption and restoration. See, what can God's people do in this situation when sin has so corrupted them that they can't do anything but? They can't do anything but sin. They can't turn the direction of their lives from rebelling against God and turning away from God to serving God and pleasing God. What can they do? There's very little they can do. There's nearly nothing they can do. There's nearly no hope. If they're totally corrupted by sin, then all they can do is sin more. They can't create in themselves the righteousness that God calls them to. But there is one thing they can do. They can admit that their lives lack that righteousness. They can admit their lives are filled with unrighteousness. And they can come to God admitting and confessing that. And that's what they do. There's no hope for them except to admit they're hopeless and turn to God for help. And that's what we see in verse 12. And up to that point, Isaiah is describing the people of God. Your hands, your finger, your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. In the second person. But then in verse 12, it starts saying, Things like this, our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. In other words, this is language of confession. This is language of Isaiah leading the people of God on the path of humble and honest confession. And when we become aware of and admit to our condition, then God's hope comes into the picture. Then we have hope for God's redemption to enter into our lives. As long as we try to hold on to some kind of false hope, as long as we hide in the ignorance of our sin, or as long as we try to explain away our sin, or rationalize it, or minimize it, or deny it, or shift the blame for it, all things that Adam did when he was first confronted with his first sin, and that all of us in Adam have become quite good at doing ever since, and apart from God's grace, would only ever continue to do that. And so would cut ourselves off from any hope. But God's grace enables us to see our sin. God's grace enables us to own our sin. God's grace enables us to confess our sin like the confession we see in verses 12 through 13. In those verses, there's just confession. There's just honest and real confession. And if you've been sinned against, you know 
how, how good it is to hear someone confess that sin just honestly and real without making excuses, without blaming you or someone else or something else, without minimizing it away, without trying to sort of just water down what they did. And if you've sinned against somebody, you know how freeing it is when you finally get the courage to just own it. And that's most true in our relationship with God. When we finally get the courage to just own it, it's freeing. But it's hard to do. Because when we do that, it feels like we're gonna get further away from righteousness. But we're not. We're only getting further away from false righteousness, from blindness. And we're only getting caught up to our true condition so that we can be closer to the place we need to be to be ready and able to receive God's grace. Because we can only receive God's grace when we really own our sin. And that's when God comes to them after they confess. They stop pretending like they had been doing in their hypocrisy. In chapter 58, they stop pretending. They look in the mirror and they embrace what they see. And they find God's grace. As long as we keep pretending, all we gain is just that, the illusion of living in a false reality that falls down on us and brings God's judgment against our empty and false self-righteousness. Righteousness that we try to earn for ourselves but can't stand before God's infinite holiness. But when we stop pretending, when we realize we need forgiveness, when we realize that if salvation is gonna come to us at all, it's gonna come from outside of us. If righteousness is gonna come to us at all, it's gonna come from outside of us. Then we look outside of us to God for help. And then we find hope and comfort and assurance. That's when God acts, verse 15, after their confession, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. You see, the, ju- the righteousness that we need to be God's people comes only from God. We don't create it in ourselves, but we receive it from him. And he, it goes on to show here God dressing up as a warrior putting on armor for battle, to do battle against sin and against the enemies of his people who don't turn to him in repentance, but to his own people who do turn to him in repentance. He comes to redeem them and to free them from the sin and death that would otherwise destroy them. See, here in this passage, God suits up for battle like a warrior, and to some he comes to repay them for their sin because they stand firm in it and don't repent. To those he comes to punish, but to others he comes to redeem. And the difference is verse 20, the redeemer will come to Zion, those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Those who repent find God's grace. And you might recognize that Paul borrows this imagery here from Isaiah chapter 59 and uses it in Ephesians chapter six. The armor of God a very familiar passage to many Christians. And the difference is though, here in Isaiah 59, God puts on this armor. 
In Ephesians chapter six, he calls Christians to put on this armor. And the point there is that if we are going to live lives of righteousness as God's people, we can only do it in the strength that God provides. We can't do it in our strength. See, God took away the penalty of sin by giving us the status of our right standing before him. And he renews our dead, sin-corrupted nature and gives us a new nature, a renewed heart and mind and strength that can live for him. And he begins the process of removing the pollution of sin by working his righteousness in our lives so that our lives increasingly reflect his righteousness. And one day he finishes that process of perfecting us in his image. And those are the main categories, theological categories of our salvation in Jesus. Justification, that we're made right, made righteous with God. Regeneration, we're giving a new nature that can now please God. Sanctification, where our lives and the way we live are progressively transformed to reflect the image of God instead of the image of self and sin. And glorification, when that process is finished and we perfectly reflect God's image. That's what God does to solve the problem of sin. He removes the penalty of it. He begins removing the corruption of it now in this life and he finishes removing the corruption of it in the next life so that not one bit of stain of sin is left in all this universe and not in our own lives either. And God promises to rebuild us, to make us new And God promises to rebuild the world ruined by sin, to make a new world. And chapter 60 goes on to describe that. And we just read the the first few verses of it, first five verses, where it talks about how there was darkness, but God's glory rises over Zion. And how this place that was once shamed is now honored. And this place that was once corrupted is rebuilt And it talks about Zion, Jerusalem, in such lofty language that it simply can't be fulfilled by the earthly city of Jerusalem. Because the Zion described here isn't just restored to its former status before its destruction by Babylon, but it's transformed into an eternally perfect world, something that exceeds the splendor of any earthly city in all this life. It can only be filled, this chapter, these promises can only be filled by the heavenly Zion, the full and final and perfect restoration of all things. And Revelation 21, which uh, is unquestionably about the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will establish at the end of history when he returns, borrows language from Isaiah 60 to show that even from the perspective of Scripture itself, Isaiah chapter 60 isn't ultimately about any earthly city, but it's about a heavenly city which we wait for at the end of history. It's not a city that we build, it's a city that God builds. It's not a city that's temporary or passing or fading in its glory, but it's a city that has eternal and uh, infinite glory unending, unfading glory. It's a perfectly renewed world. It's our eternal home. 
It's better than God's original creation because it's no longer susceptible to sin and evil. And because those who dwell in it are only there because they've experienced God's glorious and gracious salvation and are eternally grateful to him who is their redeemer. Those who live there are never separated from a God again. Those who live there are never corrupted by sin again. Those who live there are never hurt by evil again. Those who there live there never experience any sorrow again. Verse 20, your sun will never set again. Your moon will never wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Those who live there are never separated from God again. They're never corrupted again. And in the words of the shorter catechism, they, perfect, they are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. You see, that's a destiny that brings light to our darkness now. That's a promise that gives hope to our sadness now. That's a promise that brings strength to our struggle and endurance to run the race, which is hard, sometimes excruciating now, but brings an eternity of perfect rest. Let's pray. Our God, we recognize that this world fails us that our sin fails us, that all we find are empty promises in sin and broken promises from the things of this world. But we find our hope in your redemption and we find our hope in your restoration when things will be made right, when we will find your eternal reward that brings hope to us now. And that enables us to endure whatever hardship we face in this life. And we pray that you would give us that strength by enabling us to believe your precious promises. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.